1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Milton Chen about his book, Education Nation, Six Leading Edges of Innovation in Our Schools. Milton, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trevor. I'm wondering if we can start the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Yes, I'm I'm Milton Chen, and um, I've had a long history of working at the intersection of education, media, and innovation, uh, I have served as a director of research at Sesame Workshop back in New York, working on some of their PBS children's series, um, the best known of which is Sesame Street. Uh, I've also, um, done some academic work. I did some graduate work in communication and media at Stanford and then taught at the Harvard Graduate School of Education for a couple of years. Uh, worked at KQED, the PBS station and NPR station here in the Bay Area for about 10 years, and then uh, most recently was the executive director at the George Lucas Educational Foundation, also here in the Bay Area, uh, which most folks know by our website edutopia.org. And then I've been independent for the past five years or so, doing a variety of, of uh, uh, assignments, writing, speaking at conferences uh, like yourself, Trevor, and um doing some board work. I chair the Penn Assign Foundation Board in Newark, New Jersey and also chair an advisory uh, board for the National Park Service.
1: One thing I I really appreciate about the book is that you start off by acknowledging that you've had your own unique learning journey that frames and shapes your views on education, and you actually share that with readers before you you even get into the rest of the book. So I'm wondering if uh, you can share a little bit about how you've come to work with schools and what kinds of experiences have shaped your views on what the purpose of education is.
0: Well, I was always interested in in, uh, working with children. I guess uh, my earliest experiences were as a day camp counselor there in um, the Chicago area where I grew up. I enjoyed working with uh, children, and uh, I remember they were fourth, fifth graders, uh, day camp, and uh, YMCAs. Uh, And as I went to college, I got interested in education and um, started working at a place called the Center for Law and Education at, at Harvard University. Uh, our executive director at the time was a, a young civil rights lawyer named Marion Wright Edelman, who many people now recognize as the founder of the Children's Defense Fund in, uh, in Washington. And I was doing some, some research on, at the time I thought I would, had a vague idea of becoming maybe a civil rights lawyer uh, and maybe working on education law, desegregation, uh, uh, classification of students, special education kind of issues. And one of the graduate student Um, statisticians said there's some very interesting work going on at the uh, Ed School related to educational media and we have a professor named Gerald Lesser who is advising Sesame Street. Back then Sesame Street had been on the air for maybe less than five years. So I did meet with uh, Jerry. He became a real mentor to me and an inspiration to me and uh, my first summer job was at Sesame Workshop in New York and then my first job after college uh, was as an uh, assistant to the Vice President for Research. So those those five years in particular of working at Sesame Workshop were very formative in my own development, <clears throat> and uh, that's how I really got interested in, in uh, educational media and their use in schools and private schools.
1: Sesame Street strikes me as something that is uh, well known but perhaps not well understood. Uh, lots of people have grown up watching Sesame Street but maybe not fully appreciating uh, what they might have been learning from the show. And so uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think made the program so innovative.
0: Well, It's, it's very true that um, by now several generations uh, have grown up with Sesame Street. I often meet uh, parents and even grandparents of kids who grew up with the program themselves. Uh, it, it's not well known that Sesame Street has, from the very beginning, always had a curriculum that's developed by uh, education experts around the country and also has a program of formative research where the segments before they're broadcast are tested with uh, preschool children. And uh, the segments are often revised. The scripts are often revised based on the feedback of three-, four-, and five-year-olds. So that was very much part of Sesame's DNA from the very beginning and part of what made it very innovative and successful was this marriage between creative production, um uh, everyone knows the Muppets and Jim Henson's contribution and the, the writing, the characters on Sesame Street, this this blend of animation, music, uh comedy. It's <laughs> it's a very entertaining program, both for kids and for uh their parents and their caregivers. That marriage with the creative side with the educational, uh, substantive side of curriculum development and formative research and education experts around the country helping to advise the program and shape it. Uh, and I think many people know some of the most innovative curriculum around presenting issues of, of, um, death. Uh, Mr. Hooper's death, uh, many, several decades ago was actually addressed on the program after much discussion, uh, among experts and, and the producers.
1: What are some of the strengths and challenges that, that you've seen for television as a medium for education? And, and how does TV compare to what's possible now with the internet?
0: Well, I'd say that it's, it's a little hard to generalize, but I'd say that certainly in the case of educational television and Sesame Street, and I've been an advisor to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood as well, um, you have the power of story, you have the power of characters. And as I'm suggesting, <clears throat> Um, uh, comedy, entertainment, together with educational content. And on the Internet, uh, it has its roots in information, of course. Um, it has its, its roots in, in finding information, sharing information. But those two worlds of, of narrative and, and information are merging, of course. You can watch television on the Internet. So I think the challenge for educational media moving forward is how to combine storytelling and entertainment values, um, and I, I hesitate to use the word edutainment, but making the learning more enjoyable, more engaging, more motivating. I think that's the power of a program like Sesame Street, so that the children want to learn, and they want to continue the learning based on that experience with the media. Um, having that together with this wealth of information now that's available through through the Internet and through through many of the you know, technology tools we have today, uh, this move towards personalizing learning, for instance, that's something that the Internet and technology is now making possible. Uh, I'm recalling some of your work, uh, Trevor, with, with ePortfolios, mm-hmm. a chance to put together and display and receive feedback on your own learning. That was never possible through one-way television, but now it is possible through a combination of making your own films, making your own media and your own television about your own learning and um, sharing it with a worldwide audience. I mean, that's, that's very powerful and uh, I think indicates the path forward for, for all of this
1: work. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like you, you have the same possibilities with, with narrative and with entertainment, but instead of you being limited to one-way communication, you can now get real-time uh, feedback from your audience and adapt what you're doing to to be an even better storyteller. Yes,
0: I think that's the exciting piece of it to have uh, very young children. Um, you know, probably twenty years ago, we were amazed to hear that that uh, you know a, a high school student could make a a video or, or share a, a story or a poem that they had written and receive feedback from from people in you know uh, in Africa or Australia. This was an astonishing achievement. And now we see five-year-olds or seven-year-olds doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's a very exciting piece of of the Internet making learning, as I like to say, international, uh, globalizing um, the learning that students can now have.
1: So how did your experiences in television lead you uh, to work with George Lucas and at Utopian?
0: Yes, I was actually working as a, a education director at KQED, our PBS station in San Francisco, and doing things like uh, having teacher workshops uh, to have teachers think about using Ken Burns' series on the Civil War in their own teaching of American history. That was an amazing achievement, and I think Ken Burns's series continued to show how television, just sitting and watching, uh, and then, hopefully, discussing um a movie uh, a television program can still be a very powerful learning experience um, television as a way of of presenting content of making it compelling in ways that it's very hard to have uh have that done in in just a book uh or um a textbook alone so i I applied for this position to be the executive director at the George Lucas Educational Foundation, and this was back in 1998, (laughs) before the Internet. I think we had at KQED, we had just started helping teachers use email. In fact, there are teachers in the Bay Area who still remember that their first email was their name at kqed.org. So... Uh, There was a nice connection there because uh, George Lucas was interested in using film, visual media, to tell stories and to uh, present content. So that was a nice connection. I remember in our first uh, discussions, uh, starting with the job interview, and as I began to uh, start work there, we would often talk about the power of the image. And uh, I think he felt that my own experience working in in public television, educational television, would be helpful because he wanted to use film and um, the power of, of narrative to help teach students and found that very lacking in the school system. So from the very beginning, George Lucas Educational Foundation, now known uh, primarily as, uh, through its website, edutopia.org, which receives several million visitors um Just as a website alone, and then it's content shared with uh, many, many more through social media. uh, The heart of its work has always been the documentation of educational innovation in classrooms through film. But back then, in 1998, we had just made our first production, and it was shared through uh, VHS cassette. Five innovative schools that today, um, if I were to describe, uh, you know, students in Chula Vista, California, fourth graders are Studying insects and connecting via video conference with scientists at at uh, San Diego State University—that would sound like a very much a current project—but it was in fact a, an early project using technology uh, again, uh, almost 20 years ago. Wow,
1: I had I had no idea you were initially distributing video on uh, VHS tapes rather than streaming online. <laughs> of course, uh, that that was what was feasible in, in 1998.
0: Yes, yeah, so I remember giving some talks to educators, uh, as I now do, and I I would always talk about our work. And I'd say, well, if you want to know more about our work, um, there are some boxes in the back of the room, and they contain a VHS cassette and a book. That's mm-hmm. how we shared knowledge back then. And um, <laughs> and now all that has come together, obviously, uh, perhaps stunningly through through the Internet. Um, but in my work at Edutopia for the past... Oh, going back 17, 18 years now. You can very much track the, the progress of media, uh, and how we shared our work, starting with VHS cassette. And then I think we put them on this amazing new technology called a CD-ROM that you could put <laughs> a film segment on CD and then the DVD. And for a very long time, we shared them through DVD and began to put smaller versions of our films uh, on our website, I remember one meeting which uh, Mr. Lucas said, you know, we should get ready for the day when people will be able to see our films over the Internet. And we all said, wow, that would be amazing. We wouldn't have to actually make <laughs> copies say, sounds a lot easier. and send them out and find people and give them these copies and market." Uh And that was not that long ago. Um, I'm putting it at maybe early 2000s when he made that remark.
1: Who's the intended audience for these, these videos uh, in, taken in schools? And what do you hope your audience will, will do once they've, they've seen what's possible?
0: I give a lot of credit to to George Lucas in, in thinking and framing the work of Edutopia.org. Um, he was reflecting on his own growing up in Modesto and his own lack of engagement, I'll put it that way, with school, even though he was curious about a lot of things and he had interests. Um he was interested in cars, he was interested in, in uh cultures of people. He was interested in photography. I think that's the one inkling of who he is today in his own career in filmmaking, was that as a young boy in high school, maybe even earlier, he did have a dark room at home. Uh and <laughs> I often have to explain to people exactly what a dark room was. Uh but this is how you made photographs. Back then, so uh, Mr. Lucas did understand that in order to change education, you'd have to change the public perception of education. That it should be very different from the way in which we went to school. And, and by we, I mean even even millennials who were in school, you know, ten fifteen years ago, which should still be very different from that. He was always an advocate of project based learning from the very beginning. Our first film and and book, Learn and Live, has great examples of project-based learning, of broader community engagement, schools that stay open so that parents and the community can view the school as the community center um, during the after-school hours and during the summer as well. There are classes and activities for for parents and the community at the school site. So uh, George Lucas has always felt that the audience for Edutopia should be everyone with an interest in improving education and that should include all parents, uh, but also people working in business who are finding that they don't have employees with the right skills, that they have job openings, but not enough people to fill those positions. Um, And it could include a wide variety of nonprofits and and, um, youth-serving organizations as well. So we've always tried to make the content accessible for everyone, and that's a great thing about film is that it, it communicates visually rather than verbally but that also in writing about and providing the deeper level of content about these practices, cooperative learning, social-emotional learning. We want to follow up and present, after you've seen the film, begin to understand what this actually looks like in the classrooms, understand some of the research, Uh, have articles written by leading experts. But those those articles are presented in a jargon-free way. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Lucas was always a great advocate of that because he would tell us that often in meetings, as he was trying to understand education, people would start talking in this very arcane language of educationese, all sorts of you know, abbreviations and uh, and long words. And um, he'd always say, "He come away from those meetings having a headache for one, but he'd also can 'Can't we explain this in a clearer way?'"
1: And as someone who's who's taught, I've always thought, wow, these things seem to have practical applications in my personal life or in other fields. Everyone would benefit from knowing a little bit about what I know about communicating and educating other people. And at the same time, I feel like I've learned a lot from people who work in other disciplines, and I find that those things can apply to teaching in the way we've designed school.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the great things about the Internet is it just shows how... All knowledge is interconnected. Um, and we, we don't need to, and we shouldn't silo knowledge and information into the kinds of subjects that we've traditionally taught. You know, the, the arts are very separate in, in many schools from, from say science or from even reading and writing, whereas, you know, the arts are a way of expressing yourself. And, um, there's so much in the arts that should be integrated and, and are integrated into the real world when it comes to, um, the sciences. Uh, we, we do a great service for, for students to show how the arts are applied in the sciences and this closer connection between the humanities and the sciences.
1: One thing that, that struck me when you were kind of explaining uh, what you hope to accomplish with edutopia.org was that it, its goal, its mission, was uh, really important, but also really big. And so I'm curious like, if, if you're trying to change uh, what we as a society think of when we think of education. How do you measure your success with that? How do you get a sense as to whether or not you're making any headway?
0: Um, Well, I'm recalling uh, Mr. Lucas's answer to that question when we would talk about it in our meetings and when people would ask him. uh, He would say, well, probably never really know. But since we're dealing with making media, we're not really running schools, making decisions about schools, we're not involved in setting policy for schools. Um, our real goal is to inspire and show what the future could look like. Uh, the future actually is now. It's just not evenly distributed as, as one future sunset. Uh You can see the future of what education should be in, in a number of schools and classrooms around the country, perhaps um, not even a majority, but a, a minority of them are moving in the right direction. And technology is helping to support that as it gets better and faster and cheaper. Um but since we make media, we hope to change people's minds about what is possible. And uh we sometimes measure um our our impact through our reach and as I was suggesting earlier, more than easily more than a million, uh in some months a million and a half visitors to edutopia.org, Um and then much of it shared through social media, um, often double or triple fold. So we know that our audience has grown tremendously. That it's a global audience. I remember looking at some of our web traffic figures. That about a quarter of that audience comes from other countries, uh, mostly English-speaking countries like Australia, the UK, Singapore. Uh, but that our reach has grown dramatically. And as I go around and talk with different groups of, you know, a hundred to a thousand people, uh, usually a majority of hands go up when I mention have you seen edutopia.org in the past year.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you come to write Education Nation?
0: Well, it's an interesting <laughs> question that uh for an organization and for um an individual like myself who's very much focused on the use of, of newer media to share and to communicate, uh I did write a book <laughs> and uh, uh it was published in two thousand ten. So around two thousand eight and through two thousand nine I was working on it. It really was this idea of trying to curate the vast collection of stories uh, that we had been working on for almost 15 years, 13, 14 years um, at the Lucas Foundation that people would come up to me around that and say, wow, that's an amazing website. It's very deep, but I'm, I'm a fourth grade teacher. Could you tell me the five things I should look at? I try to use your search engine, I try to use Google, I find things, sometimes they're not relevant, but I want to figure out how to integrate the arts in my teaching of um, the language arts. And what could I look at there? So it was my attempt to organize and curate the website into a book form and, and put out some of the most important ideas that I felt should be shared more broadly. And um, I organized it uh, into, as you mentioned, six leading edges of innovation, which very much at the time... We're on the edge, but have moved gradually closer to the center. Um, I talked about the first edge probably being the most important edge, which is the thinking edge and changing our thinking about education, what a school is, what happens in a place called school. Are there other places where learning could happen in a community? And that suggests the fourth edge of the, uh, the time place edge. So it's... Really, my effort to, to try to encapsulate um, uh, a couple hundred pages, uh, some of the best stories of Egetopia.
1: I want to spend a little bit more time talking about those six leading edges. You've mentioned uh, the thinking that we have around education. You've mentioned time and place. I'm wondering if, if you can share some of the others, as well as uh, what are some of their, their principles, why they're important, when each of them has emerged, how quickly you see the, the six moving towards the center. And uh, any of your favorite anecdotes from the book?
0: Sure. Um, the second edge I talk about is is the curriculum edge. And, again, really challenging and rethinking what curriculum is, um, starting, first of all, with, with this idea that there's a, a, a set of subjects that students need to study and learn about. I think often the the learning experiences of kids are very narrowly conceived, and we don't see how, as I was discussing earlier, even mathematics could apply not only to the sciences but to the arts. Um, we don't see how we can shift the curriculum from a student mainly getting information to creating information. Uh, and I'd say that one of the most signal examples of the curriculum manager is really shifting from the textbook-based curriculum to the project-based curriculum. It's easy to say, but it's a wholesale change in how learning is presented and how curriculum are are presented because project-based learning inherently is a is interdisciplinary. And uh it you know, starting in middle school of course we starting you, know, you have a different teacher for math, a different teacher for science, for foreign language, and on and on. And I think that history goes back a long way, but we've had a lot of difficulty changing the very structure of schools from that uh, very siloed experience. so the third edge I talk about is the technology edge, of course, which <laughs> Um, you don't even have to even say anymore, and I think that's the one edge that I'm I'm gratified to see has really moved towards the center. Uh, again, when I started working at uh, Edutopia, when I would talk about technology and even the word technology, it seemed so foreign. It was something outside of learning. Uh But now we don't even. I think the word technology to encapsulate what what this learning is, how you know, students and teachers are, are gathering information, sharing information, analyzing information. Uh this move to one to one again and mm-hmm. ten years ago it was really a you know a steep climb, uh heavy lift to talk about providing a device for every student. But now you see many districts moving towards this uh in a very uh, aggressive way. And I think the the iPad um which came out I think in two thousand ten was really uh, the beginning a much broader expansion of one-to-one programs. Uh, the first time you have a really powerful device um, connected to the internet for the cost of a textbook. That was kind of the inflection point. If you could provide "quote unquote" technology for the cost of a textbook, then school districts, because they're very cost-conscious, would say, "Wow, well maybe there is something to this this whole technology thing." Um, I mentioned the time and place edge, which is one of my favorite edges. Um, because it, it it is about expanding learning time, that every day now, every hour can be a learning day or hour for students, whether it's July 15th or January 15th. And um, I talk about the summer learning that can go on, and um, often it can be very powerful and memorable learning because it, it happens outside of the classroom. And that suggests different learning places where kids can learn, um, libraries, museums, uh, parks. I've been involved with the national parks and this is the centennial of the national parks, so a lot more attention to the role of park-based and place-based learning. Uh, the fifth edge I talk about is the co-teaching edge, which is teachers working together with other educators to help teach this more ambitious content. I think mean, it's very hard for one individual teacher to know everything I think it's nearly impossible uh, about the subjects that they're trying to teach. Uh, so that does involve bringing in other experts uh, to help teach. I, I like classrooms where parents are, are brought in to help teach what they know. And um, the last edge I talk about is the youth edge and really giving more responsibility to students themselves for their own learning, that it's no longer you have to in a passive position of absorbing content, information from a teacher, but that now we've given you this amazing environment of the Internet, you can learn anything very quickly. I'm also encouraged and excited about how quickly kids can learn content. You don't have to just go at the pace of the textbook, but you can go at your own pace and learn things very quickly. And I think this is, you know, it almost goes without saying, but this should be applied in education when you consider on a, a dining table and have these conversations and all of a sudden people can fact check each other and find things very quickly in a matter of seconds, that should be applied in education as well. So I like this idea of this new generation of learners who can find things very quickly and begin to learn more deeply and more quickly.
1: You mentioned technology as an edge that's really moved towards the center, especially in the time since the book has been published. It's hard for me to to imagine a time when people were sort of skeptical of of some use of technology in schools. I'm wondering uh, if out of the six, is there been one that's um, been slower to move towards the center, maybe because it faces more obstacles than the others?
0: Yes, I would say, I would say it's probably the thinking edge. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first talk I gave based on the book was a summer of 2010 6 years ago to the Florida teachers of the year and and to their credit Florida has one of the most ambitious teachers of the year programs where teachers are selected and recognized but not just in a simple ceremony they're brought to the Hard Rock Cafe venue at you know Disney World in Orlando Florida it's a black tie event and you know hundreds maybe a thousand people come and it's it's very exciting almost like um these reality shows where you see these, you know, you you're voting for people or the finalists are performing. There's a lot of drama and excitement to that event. I remember talking about these edges with the Florida Teachers of the Year. There were about 75 of them that were there. And I asked them that question about what's the most important edge. And we had these little clickers and they voted. And clearly the most important edge, according to them, was the thinking edge. They understood that if you could change people's thinking about what this is all about, a number of the other had just come along with it. But the hardest thing to do is to change people's thinking about the role of the teacher, the role of the student. What is a classroom? Could a classroom be outside in nature? Uh, The benefits of that, um, what is best done within a classroom setting, what is best done out in the community? Uh, things like project-based learning take kids out of the community to solve real-world real problems. So, you know, changing the thinking about all this, and especially at the policy level, uh, because policymakers tend to be a little older, and um, they they feel that they went to school and they understand what a school is, and they want to see those kinds of schools in place, um, often as you get to the policy level with governors, for instance, state school board members, um education becomes not only, uh, seems a lot, (laughs) a lot more ancient, but also a lot more political.
1: And I'm, I'm also thinking as you're describing those people, they are probably the people who did well in school, the way that it, that it functions now. The people who uh, have a poor experience in school, maybe with the exception of George Lucas don't often uh, get to be in a position to, to advocate, uh, for those kinds of changes.
0: Yes, I think that's, that's probably true, that, uh, people who, who go into education, go into it uh, for very good reasons and well-intentioned reasons is because they liked quote unquote education, they liked their own education, they liked their school experiences. Um, now we need to take that, those positive aspects of, of schooling and, and meld it with what is now possible, mm-hmm. uh, learning anytime, anywhere.
1: Uh, many of our listeners are teachers, so I'm curious. As you see these leading edges moving towards the center, uh, to the extent that you can sort of look into the future, uh, what do you think teaching might look like in in 10 or 20 years?
0: I like to think of education being not so separate from the rest of the world. Uh, I like to think of uh, a place called school much as you would think about a workplace Um, that in many ways the rest of society is less insulated from change. Um, When you're a company and you have to make sure that your profits exceed your expenses, you tend to find ways of changing um, the enterprise and making it more efficient, keeping up with the times. So if you look at the modern workplace, you see people working together in teams, for one. Mm -hmm. You see that the idea of the individual knowing everything that they needed to do to do their own job, maybe in a factory where you could work alone um, and do your job for eight hours a day, you see how dramatically that's changed in the workplace where skills and knowledge have become so specialized that people who develop products need to work with people who market products and services, um, that technology is used uh, as a way of communicating, as a way of designing as a way of marketing. So I I would say that hopefully in the future schools could keep closer pace with the rest of the world and how, especially the world of work. And if the world of work uh, could also get more interested in how to prepare students, give them experiences earlier, teachers and students, in how the larger world of work and society was changing, that would be a good thing. So I am an advocate of things like linked learning uh, here in California, uh, where the state has also um, put public funding into creating these learning pathways that involve exposure to careers, involve taking high school students, especially, into the workplace, into hospitals and healthcare centers, into architects and lawyers' offices into the world of agriculture here in California, which, you know, such a, a huge industry mm-hmm. uh, for the country and for the world, but students, especially urban students, get very little exposure to, to the world of agriculture and how it incorporates the latest science and the latest technology uh, to feed the world. And that's something that we here in California should be very proud of and also very interested in. Uh, so. Uh, Yeah, I think um, just a closer connection between some of the practices that go on in the workplace and the workplace being not just an office, but perhaps a farm (laughs) or a a hospital and uh, beginning to have a closer connection between the world of work and the world of learning.
1: You mentioned earlier uh, about your interest in the national parks and, and how we can utilize the outdoors for education. Of all the things we can do outside, what sorts of opportunities do you think we should be taking most advantage of?
0: Great. Well, I'm glad to talk about the role of the National Parks in learning because it is the centennial of the National Parks. Hopefully, most of your listeners will know that the National Park Service itself was founded in August of 1916. And just a couple weeks ago, uh, we celebrated the, the actual 100th birthday of the National Park Service. So this year, there's been a lot of attention to the national parks, um, both as uh, as Wallace Stegner, the novelist, called them, and Ken Burns used it in the title of his, his film series, "America's Best Idea, uh, a distinctly American idea of uh, national parks that, again, is one of our best ideas that have gone around the globe. Uh, much like Sesame Street has many different international versions, many, many countries have taken up that idea of setting aside Uh, its most precious lands for uh, all people. It's a very democratic idea, all people to enjoy, not just the wealthiest or the aristocratic class or the the emperor would set aside uh, the best lands for uh, his family to enjoy. So, uh, yes, I'm very glad to talk about that Uh, and glad to point people to an op-ed that uh, NPS Director John Jarvis and I wrote for Education Week, uh, published in August of of this year Uh, the national parks really bring together a lot of the edges of innovation that i talk about certainly when it comes to uh, different learning places the more than 400 national park sites are really america's most important and precious places so people should know what they are first of all Uh, it would be great if you could ask a group of high school students to name you know, 50 national parks and why they're important, why they were set aside, what do they represent, and I would bet it'd be a very interesting exercise. <laughs> maybe I'll try it with a, a group of students next time I'm in front of them uh, to name as many national parks as they could. Then um, they go far beyond, of course. People could probably, certainly here in California, mention Yosemite, <laughs> maybe Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon. Uh, they might get to five and maybe ten, but then after that, they're probably scratching their heads. So um, yes, I do believe that uh, if you were to know more about the history of the national parks and to visit more national parks, this would help create this, this learning time and place edge, of understanding everything there is to learn in these places. I, I sometimes say, boy, it's one thing to learn about American history from the textbook or from your teacher, but when you're actually standing on a battlefield let's say, Gettysburg, a national park, you can see uh during those three days of a hot summer, you begin to understand, oh, this is what it was like. You begin to understand exactly how the battle happened during those three days and also how it could have gone in a different direction. Now, the Confederacy came very, very close to winning Gettysburg, and if they had they might have been able to get to Washington, D.C., because that was the northernmost battle uh, of the Civil War uh, only at that time. There's a lot of things that happen when you're in a particular place, and I like to say it it involves all of your senses. Mm -hmm. Uh, You feel the heat. You feel you stand on the place. Um, You can see with your eyes how something unfolded. So that... um, Uh, Sometimes I say that kids need to come to their senses in learning, uh, both literally and figuratively. and Use all of your senses. Use your entire body in your learning. Uh, I know that Sir Ken Robinson has this great quote in one of his TED Talks about somehow we've forgotten that kids have a body, and we think that learning is just something that happens Mm -hmm. from the neck up, (laughs) that your body is just a way, as I think he said about uh, certainly for university faculty, of which he was one your body just becomes a way of transporting yourself to meetings as a faculty member. But, but all faculty, even, uh, you know, K-12 teachers need to understand we need to talk about embodied learning. And national parks certainly, certainly enable that. So, um, there are places where you can learn both about history and culture as well as science. I was just in Lassen Volcanic National Park here in, in Northern California. And they said, We have a project going on here with in astrobiology. I said, What is astrobiology? They said, Well, it's the study of biology in extreme of living things in extreme circumstances with an eye towards understanding whether there might be life on other planets, whether much more extreme temperatures, extreme conditions, but we have them here in Lassen Volcanic National Park. Look at that that boiling mud patch, mud pot. There are microorganisms living in that. So high school students at Red Bluff High School are working with scientists at NASA who are very interested in these extreme conditions here on Earth to study uh, whether some of these conditions might be replicated in outer space. So what could be more exciting to be on the cutting edge of science and working with NASA scientists in a, in a place where you live? Uh, it's a very unusual uh, Climate ecosystem, and it's here in Northern California. And um, what would be better than to understand uh, the the conditions of your own ecosystem just where you live? So uh, these are real jewels in our our, uh, national park system and, and really in our democracy.
1: Well, Milton, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, first, what are three other books that you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed Education Nation and our conversation today?
0: Well, I I like to point to books that have been written over over the history of, of education because a lot of these ideas may seem very new and therefore kind of threatening, perhaps, mm-hmm. or things that we just thought up. <laughs> all of a sudden, but in fact this idea of using all of your senses to learn, of project-based learning, uh, go back many, many decades and, and education students and teachers who have studied the history of education will recognize the echoes of, of educators such as Maria Montessori, John Dewey um, in, in this work, uh, certainly the idea of, of the school being open to the community. I know that John Dewey, when he visited, um, I'm from the Midwest, so I like the story. He visited, uh, uh, I think it's East Moline, uh, Illinois, a town on the Mississippi River, and a superintendent of schools told him, You'd be surprised to know that kids who live right next to the Mississippi River have trouble understanding the information about the Mississippi River in the textbook. They don't understand that that thing that they're reading about is, in fact, that body of water long past their homes. So this, and it will hopefully uh, harken back to some of the points I made earlier, this idea of connecting up your own real life experience with your school experience and the way in which topics and information are presented in, in school, understanding sort of the abstract nature, and we need to get to abstraction in order to to understand phenomena, but to understand the abstraction that's presented in your textbook—whether it's a math textbook or a science textbook, even a history textbook—which tends to abstract um, real lived history in, in um, often uh, unfortunate ways and oversimplified ways—that um, becomes the point. So, I like I like John Dewey's books. Uh, uh, one of his uh, books called *School and Society*, uh, written more than a hundred years ago. Uh, I especially like his. Um, that book because it's based on lectures that he gave to parents at the lab school at the University of Chicago, trying to, again, communicate to parents what these practices were about. Um, so I like that book. It's also a short book. <laughs> so I like John Dewey's book. Um, I like a book by George Leonard, who unfortunately is not well-known anymore, but he was active as a journalist in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and wrote a book with an unusual title, and I, I guarantee you it's a probably the only time that these two words have been used together in one sentence but the book is called education and ecstasy and in that book George Leonard makes the point that you know education should be joyful it should be something that we want to do that we move towards not away from and he talked about uh, the role of of learning being something that we do naturally we're we're wired to learn as human beings but often we the wiring gets a little Confused mm-hmm. as <laughs> we go through our school years, that that if you were to let children pursue the topics of their interest, uh, they would encounter other topics that they probably didn't know they were interested in. So I like education and ecstasy. Let um, me try to come. something good, Let me try to come up with a third book. Um, well, there's a new book coming out that I'll mention. I'm uh, talking about some older books, and Education and Excee was, was uh, published in the 1980s as well. Um, Dale Doherty has a book coming out on the maker movement, and it's coming out this fall. And uh, it's a, a very important book uh, for education. Uh, it talks about a, a movement to uh, to make and remake things. Uh, and how that's also supported by new technology. And I hope that, um, the teachers, as you say, many teachers in your, in your audience will pick it up and look at, it. even though it doesn't talk explicitly about curriculum and teaching and learning, educators will recognize, uh, how education could change if we, we were to have kids make and fix and get interested in using their hands. Um, and again, that will harken back to some of the early ideas about education from the Shakers. You said it's important for kids to learn how to use their hands they this phrase of uh, education being a matter of the head the heart and the hands so that's social emotional learning and, and making things and um, understanding things so those are those are three books I'd recommend
1: I, I want to look into those books I especially appreciate that some of your choices go back um, maybe even a hundred years I, I think that you're right to sort of pick up on Uh, there's a healthy dose of skepticism that uh, teachers or or parents or anyone might have around new ideas in education. And uh, it can be effective to show that uh, people have been making the case for some of these ideas for a long time. And they've been able to show that they work in in other contexts.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, of course, teachers are used to being asked to adopt all sorts of new practices Every professional development workshop is something new is presented and they've, they've kind of have a kind of um, novelty fatigue of yet another new idea that you think we should embrace. And uh, George Lucas also encountered that from educators saying, well, you have these ideas, but you'd have to get in a very long line of people trying to tell us as teachers what we should be doing. Uh, because you've never taught a day in your life, but still you feel that like you should tell us what we should be doing. So, I understand that, that teachers may have that kind of fatigue about innovation and, and new ideas.
1: What are you working on now, and how can our listeners follow your work?
0: Well, mostly I've been uh, uh, promulgating the, these ideas in conferences. I, uh, as I mentioned, also chair a, a foundation, uh, the Panasonic Foundation uh, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, where we're involved with working. I mentioned that Edutopia doesn't work at the level of, of superintendents and school boards, but the, the Panasonic Foundation does. We work with urban districts around the country really on discussions of social justice and equity. So that's the work that we're doing with the Panasonic Foundation. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, doing a, a lot of work to really um, put forth the idea of, of national parks as our nation's best outdoor classrooms. So the, with the increased interest in national parks coming out of the centennial, we help to both secure um, more resources, both in terms of the federal budget as well as uh, other foundations. We're seeing other foundations really stepping up and saying, wow, we, we have seen what happens when kids are outdoors in nature and learning about uh, Native American culture, language, history in ways that you couldn't really do through the textbook and probably get the wrong ideas in, in many kinds of textbooks. So we're um, really trying to use the national parks as a platform to, to rethink learning.
1: Right, And uh, so I want to encourage people to look uh, in Education Week and continue to look for your writing online. Milton, I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thank you, Trevor. Really enjoyed it as well and enjoyed meeting uh, you at that conference in San Diego uh, last year.
1: Good. Thank you so much.